Father in heaven, you know. You know us. You know how easy it is for us to put words together and have them come out of our mouth and profess certain things. But Lord, read our hearts tonight. You know our need. And Lord, even in your scripture, you told us that we don't even know what to pray for. Except that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and pleads with us with groanings which we can't even understand. So, Father, we want you to have your way. We want Jesus to be high and lifted up, and we want a clear picture of him that we might catch a glimpse of his holiness, of his purity, of his goodness, of his perfection. Not so that we can be discouraged, but so that we can be encouraged because he is saying that we can be like him. So we thank you for hearing and for answering our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this theme, as a witness. We came up with it as a team, and uh, I thought tonight I want to come right behind this theme, so that's the title of the sermon tonight. When I was growing up young, my father was a literature evangelist, and he would, he would come home and he would tell us of the different experiences that he would have, divine providential appointments. He would tell us of how he would come and, and just he would just be driving down the road and he would be impressed to go to a certain house and he'd knock on that door and a person would come and there was, there was just a divine appointment there and he would, he would lead him to Christ. And they would kneel down and, and he would lead him through a sinner's prayer and he told us about that. I was seven years old and my heart started to, to burn within me. I want to be like Dad. I want to lead someone to Christ. I want to be a witness like Dad is a witness. But I'm just a boy. Who can I witness to? And I started to think of the different ones. And I, no, they go to church. No, they go to church. I see them in church. Well, who do I know that doesn't go to church? And then I remembered, my mom baked bread, and she baked it for several neighbors in, in, within our block and the next block. And she would have me deliver the bread. And so I remember that uh, Mr. Brown was a nice man, and we'd often visit with him. And when I delivered the bread, and I thought, you know, he doesn't go to church on Sabbath. I, I can witness to Mr. Brown. That's who I could witness to. And so one Sunday morning, I asked my mom, I says, Mom, can I go down and visit with Mr. Brown? And she said, sure, Jimmy, you go ahead. You can go down and visit with Mr. Brown. And so I walked down to where Mr. Brown's house was, a couple blocks down, and, and there was a, a swing out on his porch, and he was sitting in the swing. And as I came by, he said, hi, Jimmy. I said, hi, Mr. Brown. He says, why don't you come up here and visit with me? And I said, boy, witnessing is pretty good. Divine appointment. And so I walked up to him. He said, here, sit right next to me. And, he's, and so I sat next to him, and I'm thinking, now how do I witness? I, I've, got a, I've got a witness. How do I do it? And as we're sitting there back and forth, I'm thinking, now how can I witness? Well, I know he doesn't go to church on Sabbath, so that's not a good thing. Ah, and a thought came to my mind. I know how I'll witness. And so I waited till he was done talking, and then I said, boy, Mr. Brown, it sure is a hot day today, isn't it? And Mr. Brown says, boy, it sure is, Jimmy. It's really hot today. It's a hot 
summer day. And I said, it sure is, but it's not as hot as where you're going. <laughs> now, Mr. Brown looked at me with an inquisitive look. And I, I, I said, well, Mr. Brown, you don't go to church on Sabbath, so I know you're going. And now, there was a few words we were not allowed to use in our home. But I thought because I needed to have some strong emphasis that it would be okay in this case. And so I said to Mr. Brown, well, Mr. Brown, you don't go to church on Sabbath, so that means you're going to... Well, now, you know, Mr. Brown didn't respond the same way Dad had said so many people responded. He didn't ask me to have prayer with him. He didn't ask me to lead him in a sinner's prayer. In fact, he didn't ask me anything at all. He just looked at me with those little eyes that came down and his face turned red. And then he looked at me and he said, Jimmy, you go home. Well, I stood up. I thought, well, am I in trouble? I got in trouble. How did I get in trouble? What did I do? And I turned around and looked at him. He says, yeah, go on, go on home. And I walked to the edge of the porch and I turned around and looked at him. He says, yeah, go on, go on. So I took my steps down the, walked down the steps, and I started for heading home, and I said to myself, boy, I don't like this witnessing thing. This witnessing thing doesn't work. And so I went home, and I came in the door, and Mom said, Jimmy, what's the matter? She could tell I, did, I, you know, I was upset. And I, I told her, I said, Mom, I don't, I don't like this witnessing thing. Dad comes home, and he tells us about all these stories, but it doesn't work for me. And she said, well, Jimmy, what happened? I said, well, I went and witness to Mr. Brown, and he told me to go home. And she said, well, what, what did you tell Mr. Brown? And so I told her. And she said, oh, no, Jimmy, that is not witnessing. That's the kind of thing the devil does. We've got to share love, God's love for people. Now you need to go back to see Mr. Brown. You need to go see Mr. Brown, and tell him that you are sorry, and you need to ask him to forgive you. So I walked back down those long way to Mr. Brown's house, and I'm thinking, oh, I, I didn't mean to hurt his feelings. And as I came back, I, I walked back up to his porch, and he was swinging back and forth and back and forth, and you could tell he wasn't happy. And as I came, I stood at the edge of his, his steps there that led up to his porch, and my head was down, and you could tell just by my demeanor that something had changed. And Mr. Brown just sat there. He didn't say anything, so I said, Mr. Brown? He said, what do you want, Jimmy? I said, Mr. Brown, can I talk to you for a minute? What do you want? So I came up the steps. And I walked over to where Mr. Brown was, and I didn't look at him, I was looking down at my shoes. And I was just, and I said, Mr. Brown, Mama told me that what I said to you wasn't very nice, and I, I'm sorry I said it. Would you forgive me? There was a pause. And then Mr. Brown said, took a deep breath, and he said, yes, I'll forgive you, Jimmy. Come on up here and sit next to me. And so I came up, I sat next to him, and we talked about all kinds of things, but we didn't talk about how hot the day was. <laughs> now, I want you to know that with everything that was in me, I thought I was witnessing to Mr. Brown. 
You see, I had missed a step or two in there. I had a misconception of what a witness is. What is a witness? You know, some people will define witness in, and rightly so, as sharing biblical information. Especially our core beliefs. We call them fundamental beliefs. Sometimes we refer to them as doctrines, teachings. They have been derived from deep study of God's Word, not by one person, but a deep study of God's Word. Whole subjects have been dug into in Scripture and, and, and looked at. 28 fundamental beliefs that can be divided up into six major categories. First one is everything we know about God. Second one is everything we know about man. Everything we know about salvation. And everything we know about the church, about what the Bible teaches about those things. And everything we know about the Christian life. And then if you go back up and we say, what do we know about God? What are some of those doctrines that we have about God? And the very first doctrine of this church, coming from the Bible, from His Word, is our belief that God's Word is the authority of life. It's the belief that God is who He is, and He wrote down a criteria. He wrote down a book of instructions. He wrote down everything we need to know about the past, the future, and the present. And on that one doctrine hang all of the others because they're all derived from Scripture and the Bible is the source of that authority. So what are some of the other ones? Well, the Bible teaches about a Godhead. It teaches about God being almost like a last name. You have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all defined as God with three major components that define who that is. They can be everywhere at once. They are all powerful and they're all knowing. They don't need to retain life from somebody else. They are life givers. God. Godhead. All derived from Scripture. And, and everything we know about what the Bible teaches about man. Where did we come from? We believe in creation. The nature of man. We were created in God's image. But because of sin, we have, we have lost our image of God. And then everything we know about salvation. How can we be restored in that broken relationship from God? About the great controversy. Where did sin come from? It didn't start on this earth. It started in heaven. And the Bible tells us about it. It tells us about the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And why He had to die. It talks about how we can experience salvation. And then once you've experienced it, what do you do then? That's how to grow in Christ. It talks, the Bible tells us about the church. Who is the church? The Bible defines two groups of people. One is a group of people who recognize the authority of God. And the others who don't. 
And so those who recognize the authority of God are called His church, His people, His bride. There are other definitions for it. And it talks about the remnant and its mission. Because the Bible tells us that the church has lost its focus and it no longer, it no, no longer looks at God as being the authority. There's only a remnant that recognizes that God's word is the authority of life and live by it. And God has a mission for them. He has a message for them to give to the world. But it's for them too. And then it talks about unity. The Bible tells us about unity. How do we have unity? We want unity desperately. Not the kind of unity that comes together when, when people come agree on certain points of doctrine. That's only a certain superficial kind of unity. But it talks about a unity of heart that must first begin with a unity with Christ. And then it talks about how you come to the church. Through baptism, the front door. Then it talks about the Lord's Supper and the importance of it. And, the, and then the, the, the belief of spiritual gifts and ministries. The Bible lays it all out for us. And the gift of prophecy. And then there's another one. Another grouping. The Christian life. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where people start to say, nah, I don't think so. Because it deals with a lifestyle. It deals, that, it deals with things that have to change in our life if we embrace the teachings of Jesus. It talks about the law of God and how it's the standard of perfection. And God says that we have to reach that standard. We don't like that. Then it talks about the Sabbath and the importance of the Sabbath in developing a relationship with God. And then we have the belief about stewardship. We are managers of what God has given us. Managers of our bodies. Managers of the talents that He's given us. Managers, managers of the responsibility that He's given to us. And then Christian behavior. This one really touches home. It encompasses the things that I do. The things that I wear. The things that I like. The things that I eat. And then there's one that's on marriage and family. The Bible lays out what a marriage is. And then the last grouping. It's the grouping of last things. It's, it's the grouping that has, has Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary and the role it takes, Christ takes, in helping us to reach that level of perfection that is required to have a connection with God that is, that is reunited. Then there's the second coming. We all look forward to the second coming. And then there's a death and resurrection. We look forward to the resurrection, especially if we've lost loved ones that are waiting in the grave. And then the millennium and the end of the world. And the last one is new, the new earth. How God is going to recreate this, this sin-polluted world. These 28 fundamental beliefs form the framework of our relationship with God. Where did they come from? They came from Scripture. God gave them to us. You can follow the, the footprints of those who went before us and you can see from step to step, precept to precept, text to text, how these are validated in Scripture. 
When a person wants to become a Seventh-day Adventist, what is it that every Seventh-day Adventist must do? These are fundamental, 28 fundamental beliefs. And if we are going to be a Seventh-day Adventist, we study those fundamental beliefs. And before baptism, we stand up and publicly confess that we believe these 28 fundamental beliefs. And then we are baptized and we become a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church who not only believes it, but is supposed to live by it. I I want to illustrate for you the connection between, between these fundamental beliefs, doctrines, and Jesus Christ. An orange. I love oranges. And when I was a kid, I couldn't figure out why everybody peeled them. I knew that uh, when you ate apples, some people peeled apples, but I liked the apple peeling. I knew that some people peeled peaches, but I loved to eat the peaches with the peeling. I love potatoes with, with the, the skins on them. In fact, sometimes I just like to eat the skins. So I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe an orange peeling is good and people just don't know it. <laughs> and so I decided to try it for myself. And so I picked up the orange and I sunk my teeth all the way into that juicy stuff, which meant I had to get past the, the peeling. And I discovered something. I didn't even have to chew it too far. I discovered that an orange is better peeled. And once you peel this orange back, it exposes the orange and you can see that it is divided up into sections. You could put your finger down the middle and pull it apart and then you can pull each section off. And then when you take one of those sections and you put it in your mouth, you discover that the best part of the orange is the juice. Now have you ever peeled an orange and discovered that there was no juice in that orange. And you tried to eat that. It doesn't taste good. And no matter even if you like it or not, you you don't like it. You spit it out. I'm going to tell you that the doctrines of Christ are like those sections of orange. Christ is like the juice. And if Christ isn't the center of every single doctrine, they are dry, unappealing, boring. But if Christ is the very center of that orange, and you sink your teeth in it, oh, it is wonderful. Christ must be the center you know, I want, to, I, want, I want to point out one other thing. Anything that has the orange flavor or look that doesn't come from the orange is not orange juice. It's something else, but it's not orange juice. There is a group who are trying to say that all you need is Jesus. Let's dissect him from his doctrines because those are boring. But let's enjoy the juice. It doesn't come from the orange because we've dissected it. But the Bible tells us very clearly in 2 John, 
If you look in 2 John 9, in 2 John 9, it goes like this. There's only one chapter in the book of 2 John. 2 John 9 goes like this. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine or the teaching of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. You cannot separate Jesus from, from the doctrine. It's like wanting orange juice without coming from the orange. You can't do it. Jesus Himself said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto Me. That's what He said. Jesus has to be the center and the core. In fact, Jesus told Nicodemus Demas earlier in, in John 3, He said that as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, so as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up. Now he was referring to two instances. He was referring back to a time in Israel when they were wandering in the, in the desert. And as they were wandering in the desert, the people started to complain. They started to nurture an attitude that led them to push God away. He had been the source of protection and provided for all their needs. Now, without his help, they experienced the unknown dangers that existed around them fiery serpents with the sting of death. The people realized that in pushing God away, they had forfeited his protection and his blessing. And they wanted to restore that broken connection. With God. So they asked Moses to intercede for them. God instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole in the midst of camp. Anyone who looked at it would be healed. The bronze serpent symbolizes, symbolized Jesus who would become sin for the human race and die on the cross. Healing was given to all those who followed God's instructions and looked to Christ. So now a question for you. So if we find the Christian life to be boring, and we are drawn to worldly things, what is the solution? We must look to Christ. Because somehow in our busy schedule... Christ has not has lost its center place. Because if Christ is center in our life, our life is not boring. Our life is full of joy. What what is it? What is it that motivates us to embrace the teachings of God? What is it that motivates us? Some are motivated by fear. They're afraid of what might happen if they don't. Or they're afraid of being left out. But I want to tell you that fear is not a good motivator. There isn't enough power in fear to make you make the changes that are necessary to embrace God's teachings. Some are motivated by personal gain. Rewards. The rewards of heaven. But there's not enough power in those rewards alone to make the changes necessary to embrace those teachings of Jesus. 
The only power that is strong enough to embed those teachings in your heart is the love of God. Love is not only the motivation for embracing those doctrines, but it's also the motivation for sharing our love for Christ. In Desire of Ages, I read this statement. If we are Christians, Christ-like, this work, and she's referring to the work of sharing God's love with others, this work will be our delight. No sooner is one converted than there is born within him a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. The saving and sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in his heart. When that happens, Jesus says, You are my disciples, says the Lord. That No, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. What is he wanting from us as a witness? Does he want a verbal affirmation that he's God? Is that what he's looking for from us? How is it, God said we become his witnesses, how is it that we are his witnesses? How do we become his witnesses? In order to become a witness for God, we must first know God, don't we? We have to know who he is. If I was to ask you to introduce someone to the rest of you here, and had you come up, and and said, well, I want you to introduce someone that you've just heard about. Someone that you perhaps just met. I want you to introduce them. You could stand up here and you'd have a hard time introducing them because you don't know them. But if I had asked you to introduce your, your parents or your spouse or your children or your best friend, you would have no problem introducing him. Well, part of being a witness is to introduce people to Christ. So before you can introduce them to Christ, you have to know Him. Well, the problem is that we don't have a clear picture of who God is. Our picture of God is is faulty. We don't have a a, a clear picture of, of the love of God. When Paul was writing about the love of God, he devoted a whole chapter to it, 1 Corinthians 13. And he's talking about the love of God and how it's expressed by us. He can't define it, so all he can do is describe it. And he gets down to the end of his chapter, and he's frustrated. And he finally says, you know, we, we, really, we really don't know the extent of the love of God. It's like looking through a mirror dimly. For now we see in a mirror dimly, he says, but then face to face. Now I only know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. We have a, a distorted view. If, you, if, if you look in a mirror, you know, sometimes mirrors can distort what you look at. It can, it can distort it so that you really don't know what you're looking at. There are some mirrors that you look at that make you look like a beanpole. There are others that make you look large. There are some, when you look in the mirror, it it focuses in on your face and your body parts are really, really small. It distorts our picture of, of what we're looking at. 
That's the same way sin has distorted our minds, our eyes. We don't see God the way He is. It's distorted. We can't even comprehend God. We can't comprehend, let alone see, the goodness, the purity, the holiness, and the perfection of God. We can't see it. In fact, Jesus describes a group of people in Revelation 3. He describes a group of people who have a distorted view of who He is. A distorted view. It's a group of people called the Laodicean church. His last church before He comes. Now, now just so that we're all clear, who is the Laodicean church? Who is it? It's us. Just Seventh-day Adventists? No. It's everyone who professes Christ. Everyone who professes Christ. He's called the church. And God is saying that there's a problem with His church. They don't have a clear picture of who they are, of who He is. Their, their picture of His righteousness is down within reach of theirs. And so they don't feel any need. If you look in verse 17, Jesus speaks. And He says, because you, He's talking to this Laodicean church, He's talking to us. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He's saying, you think that my righteousness is where yours is. It's not. You've got a problem. You don't recognize the holiness, the goodness, the purity, and the perfection of God. You know, the Bible records another person who didn't have that view either. Who needed it a clearer picture of who Jesus was. And that was Isaiah. God called Isaiah to be a prophet. And so Isaiah rolled up his sleeves and said, okay, I'm going to be a prophet. And so he went out and tried to tell those sinners just what's what. And he wasn't very successful and he got discouraged. And so he decided that perhaps being a prophet wasn't for him. So he went to the temple and he was thinking, well, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to turn in my resignation. And what God did was give him a clearer picture of who he was, who God was. God gave him a picture of God in his glory, sitting on his throne. Angels who had never sinned, tiptoeing around in his presence, whispering, eager to do whatever he asked them to do. And in that split second that he saw God, he fell to his face and he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he saw that, he recognized that it wasn't about those sinners out there. He recognized he was a sinner. He fell far short of the glory of God. He hadn't noticed that before. He thought he was pretty good. He'd reached a level of acceptance with God. And God is saying, no, I cannot accept anything less than perfection. My perfection. How do you get his perfection? Well, if you go to the next verse in Revelation 3.18, it tells you. Jesus says this. He says, I counsel you to buy for me gold 
tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white raiment, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesalve, that you may see. See what? That you may see the glory of God. But you know what the Bible, uh, Jesus tells us in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? You know what he told us? He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He's telling us without a pure heart, we cannot see God. We're going to see God just at our level. But if we want to see God high and lifted up, we've got to have a pure heart. And as we allow Christ to purify our heart, our picture of God grows. And as it grows, our desire to be like Him grows, and we hunger and thirst after His righteousness. And then as He shows us more, and as our heart grows more like Christ, we want to be more and more like Him. God told us that he was going to give us two things. Two things. One, he was going to give us gold tried in the fire. What is this gold tried in the fire? This gold tried in the fire is the faith of Jesus. What is faith for? Why do we have faith? What is faith for? What is it useful for? Faith is the connection between us and God. That connection was broken. And so God gave us the opportunity to accept His Word and by faith claim it. We are connected to God. But then why do I need the faith of Jesus? Why can't I have my own faith? I've got faith. My faith is like service on a cell phone. Have you ever been in a conversation that was really important and you've gone into a place where you didn't have good cell phone service? And all of a sudden, it started to either distort what you heard, or people could hear you, but you couldn't hear them, or perhaps it just broke altogether. But you and I have to understand that when our connection with Christ, heaven, is broken, we sin. Fall. We are no match for sin, and we're no match for the devil. So unless we have an unbroken relationship with Christ, we'll never be victorious all the time. God knew it. So he said, I'm going to give you, Jesus said, I'm going to give you my faith, my constant connection. It was never broken. I came down to this earth. My connection was not broken with the Father. I encountered everything you encounter, every temptation that you encounter, I encountered it. But I overcame it because my connection with God, the Father, was never broken. It wasn't broken as an adolescent. It wasn't broken as a teenager. It wasn't broken as a, as a man, full grown. The only time his connection with the Father was ever broken was when he took on us our sins. And that connection with Christ and the Father, when it was broken, it broke his heart. He died of a broken heart because of our sins. But he rose because he had never sinned. Death couldn't hold him. He had no hold in him in which death could grab. 
And so he was raised from the dead because he was sinless. And he offers us his life. He gives us that constant connection that is never broken. And then he turns around and he says, you need one more thing because in order to be connected with the Father, you've got to reach perfection. And you'll never do it. I've got to reach it for you. When he was on this earth, he was leaving. The disciples were afraid to be alone. What are we going to do? And Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to send another, not me, not the Father, another comforter, the Spirit of truth. And he will lead you into truth, all truth. And he'll only speak the things that I spoke, so he's not going to contradict me. And he will live in your hearts. And he will bring me into your hearts. That connection will not be broken. The only thing that will break that connection is uh, you and allowing it. If, if, if you break your connection with the Holy Spirit, there's nothing I can do for you. That connection cannot be broken. My connection with you is through that Holy Spirit. But if you stay connected, I will live my life out in you. I will take your heart if you give it to me, and I'll unite it with my heart. I'll take your will, I'll merge it with my will. I'll take your mind, and, and it will become one with my mind. I will take your thoughts, and I will bring them in captivity to my thoughts. I will live out my life in you. That's how you'll get perfection. Hallelujah. Our perfection is with Christ. You know, some people say, well, we'll be perfect before Christ comes. That's the wrong question. The question is, will I have an unbroken relationship with God when Jesus comes? And the answer to that is up to you. But for me, I want an unbroken relationship with Christ. And if I have an unbroken relationship with Christ, I have perfection. Some people refer that to as righteousness by faith. I get the life of Christ lived out in me right doing because of my connection with Him through faith. How do I maintain this? You know, life, life gets busy. Sometimes I get off-centered and focused on other things. How do I do this? Well, the Bible gives us a story that helps us to understand. See, when, um, when Elijah was on this earth, he felt like he was the only one that served the Lord. And in a showdown, he was on Mount Carmel, you know the story, he wanted to demonstrate that God was who he was, and so he prayed one time for fire, and God delivered. Something transpired in his heart over the day, though. 
And later in the day, he went to the king and said, you better get off this mountain. I'm about ready to go pray and there's going to be some rain. And so he went and started praying. He prayed once and nothing happened. And he thought, what, what, did I do something wrong? What, what was it I did wrong? What, Lord, what happened? I, I asked for rain and you didn't, you didn't give it to me. And maybe I, maybe I asked wrong. So he went back and he prayed again a little less confident in himself. And he didn't get any rain. And now he's really starting to wonder, what, what, what happened? What, why, are, why, why aren't you giving me some rain? And he continued to search his heart, and he continued and continued until he came to the second, seventh time. And as he searched his heart, he, it seemed to him that he was nothing. And that God was everything. And when he reached the point of renouncing self while he clung to the Savior as his only strength and righteousness, the answer came. How is it that we're going to maintain this relationship with Christ? We've got to die to self. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I want you to know something about being a witness. When God says, you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God, He's not looking for a verbal. You see, Satan said that there's something that can't be done. He said that you can't keep the commandments of God. He said the commandment keeping was no more than slavery. You don't need to keep the commandments of God. In fact, if you throw the commandments of God off, you will have freedom, real freedom, and God knows it. And there are some who believed what he said. And they discovered that when they threw off the law of God, they became slaves in the worst possible way. Slaves to sin. And in the midst of a sin-polluted world, God said that He could save the utmost. Save to the utmost. Satan say, no, you can't. So God comes down in a sin-infected world, comes into your life, and does what only God can do. Takes the sin out of your life and recreates in your heart a character just like Him. So that you don't want to sin, you hate sin. You have no desire for it. You want righteousness of God. That it's not about you, it's about God. And in the midst of that, God turns around and says, you are a living demonstration of that fa the fact that I am God and what I can do in you. And that's the witness that you can be. I want to tell you something with all of the love in my heart. It's easy to become a Seventh-day Adventist member. You stand before a group and in public you say, I believe, number one, I believe, number two, I believe all 28 fundamental beliefs. And you become a member. But I want you to know something. There's a difference between a, being a Seventh-day Adventist member and a Seventh-day Adventist. Adventist. 
You can be a member by professing. You cannot be a member, you, you cannot be a Seventh-day Adventist unless your profession and your practice are one and the same. And when your profession and practice is one and the same, God says, now you are my witness that I am God. I want to be a witness for Christ. I want to be that kind of witness. There's different aspects of being a witness. Yes, I know that, that, that being a witness can be sharing biblical information, truths. To be a witness, you, you can help someone in need. All of that is true. But I want to be this kind of a witness that demonstrates that God has power to do what He said He could do in my life. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart, which is what we're talking about, setting yourself apart for God. And then it says, Be ready to give an answer to every man that does what? ask you for the reason of the hope that is within you. When people see your life is different, when they see the power of God revealed in your life, they are drawn, if they are drawn to God, they are drawn to you. And they're saying, tell us, what is different about you? And you're able to share what is different about you. What's different about you? You have the love of God in your heart. Why? Because He poured it in your heart. You didn't manufacture it. You see, the Bible describes a group of people who have allowed God to restore an unbroken relationship with Him in the midst of a sin-dominated world. It's true, Satan claimed that rejecting God's law would lead to to freedom, but it's been demonstrated to be false. Rejecting God's law has led to the worst kind of slavery possible. Would you agree? God has demonstrated that His law of love is truly a law of liberty, revealing true freedom by setting sinners free from the tyranny of sin. This group, who is referred to as saints, which is nothing more than a sinner saved by grace, are a living testimony, a witness that by keeping an unbroken relationship of God, with God, we will keep the commandments of God and have happiness and joy and freedom. But I want to tell you something. We cannot give our relationship with God to someone else. But we can encourage others by sharing our experience with God. We can inspire, we can encourage, we can't force. You see, we can be witnesses that God is who He says He will be. I want to ask you in closing a question. It's easy to say something in the heat of the moment. But I want to ask you if you're willing to let the Lord search your heart and show you what is keeping you back from the Holy Spirit being poured out in your life. 
And then asking God to give you the Holy Spirit because God says we need to ask for it. And He's more eager to give us the Holy Spirit than we are to give good gifts to our children. So if you've been asking for the Holy Spirit and you don't sense any difference, throw your senses out the window and go by faith. Because God said, you draw nigh to me and I'll draw nigh to you. Take him at his word. Claim it. And then let God live out his life in you. Now let me ask you, how many of you want that in your life? If that's you, stand to your feet. Father in heaven, you see us. You see our needs. We have a distorted picture of who you are. We have looked at you and we've seen you and we thought, well, your righteousness is, is within reach of us. But Lord, when we get a clearer picture, when our eyesight is, 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 is helped by your, your eye salve, we see you high and lifted up. And the second we see it, the instant we see it, we realize that we are sinners far, far away from you. But Lord, help us not to forget that but help us to remember that you love sinners, you just hate sin. So Father, I pray that you would work in us. And I want to pray, Father, that you would reveal to us what is holding us back from giving our all to you. We want that in our lives. So now, Lord, we choose to give you our hearts. We can't give you our hearts. Sin holds us back. But we can choose, and when we choose, you come in, and your promise is that you would work in us to will and do of your good pleasure, and that we can claim. So, Father, do your work in us, that we might honor and glorify Jesus, and reach that standard of perfection that you have provided for us so that we can be reunited with you, and we can see you face to face. Oh, Lord, keep us by your power. May that connection with you not be broken. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.